This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Herbert George Wells wrote superb fiction and nonfiction. At the turn of the 20th century, he and James were considered the two foremost living writers of English prose. James publicly asserted in a debate that they carried on in print that the novel must explore individual psychology, as, for example, in his famous work, The Portrait of a Lady. In that novel, the protagonist walks into a room and sees the man she thinks of as someone who is her lover sitting while an other woman stands in the flash of a moment. She understands that there must have been a prior relationship between these two, or even a continuing one, for him to be so relaxed, seated in the presence of a standing woman. That little detail, that little nuance, that inference from the smallest little interaction between individuals brings the entire emotional structure of the novel crashing down on the protagonist. It's that psychological exploration, that realism of response, that James argued the novel was for. But Wells asserted that the novel needs to explore the great social forces that shape all of us, regardless of our individual differences. I'm Scott. And this is Jesse. And that was Professor Eric S. Rabkin. Um, talking about Henry James and H.G. Wells and their views on fiction from uh, the teaching company's Masterpieces of the Imaginative Mind. That was uh, near the beginning of Lecture 6, um, and the lecture is entitled H.G. Wells, We Are All Talking Animals. This is uh, very apropos. Uh, we, we had Eric Rabkin on the podcast a while ago, but uh, Scott, you decided uh, to pick up a book called the Turn of the Screw and by Henry now James. And we're going to do a yeah. review, or not a review, a, a discussion of the book right? and various... Yeah, the version I had was from Blackstone Audio. Um, oh, shoot, I should have had the, uh, the narrator's name right here in front of me, but I don't, but I will get that. Um, I found the book on um, Paperback Swap, and when, I, when it came in, I... I we had just gone through uh, talking about H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. Yeah. Um, you, you and uh, Luke Burridge um, talked about it on his podcast, and I read it as well. And um, I remembered that Henry James and H.G. Wells, had uh, they were contemporaries, and they talked quite a bit about fiction and what fiction was. And, um, and what the novel would be, I guess. Yeah, and what the novel would be, right. So I uh, brought it up to Jesse. I said, hey, let's uh, both talk about this. So we both plan. read The Turn of the Screw. Um, which version did you read? I actually... Um, or listened to. It's funny. I, the, the version, you sent me a copy of what you had. And oh, yeah. I mm-hmm. listened to most of that, and then uh, the ending was screwed up. So <laughs> I, uh, I oh, went really? to Liverpool. Yeah. Huh. <clears throat> Didn't mention that, but... Okay. Yeah, either they got in the wrong order or it's missing a couple of files. Hmm. So I um, I went to um, LibriVox and I found an excellent version on there, actually. Oh, good. 
mm-hmm. um, that I will put in the notes here. But um, actually, it's a it's an amazing version for a you know Liberox has a mix of narrators, but they're mm-hmm. all amateurs. There's nobody there who does it for a living, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the version they have on Liberox is quite good, and um, I do recommend it. There's only one version, so I'll, I'll just find that. And okay. Yeah, the version I listened to was read by Stephanie Beecham. Yeah, she did a pretty good job, I think. She did a fantastic job. Yep. Very, very well done. So. All right. What do you think of this book? Well, I was not as enamored with it as I was with H.G. Wells. You know, I, I haven't read a lot of H.G. Wells, but I read... Uh, um, Gosh, since SFF Audio started, um, which has been seven years now, mm-hmm. I have read um, More of the Worlds and The Time Machine and now The Invisible Man. And all three of them surprised me. Um, you know, I think if you don't read H.G. Wells, you have this assumption of what he is. And The Invisible Man especially surprised me um, with a lot of the things that happened in the book. Um, it, it seemed very modern to me in a lot of ways, which I didn't expect. So, um, just saying that, though, it makes me think that the novel has kind of followed the H.G. Wells tradition, at least the novels I read. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right. And I think mm-hmm. there is another tradition um, that comes from uh, Henry James, and I think it's still alive, but I think mm-hmm. it's much weaker. Yeah. And and not just weaker in the sense that it's less popular, but also weaker in the sense that it's not as good. Right, right. So with this story, um, you know, and I should add that, you know, I read general fiction not as much as I used to, but when I'm not reading science fiction, I'm, I'm more apt to read a piece of general fiction than I am like a mystery or something. You know, you've turned mm-hmm. me on to Westlake, mm-hmm. um, and I'm enjoying that. Um, but a lot of times I would read like, you know, John Irving, or um, some of the mysteries I read, I even think are really good by, um, oh, why can't I remember his name? Guy writes Dave Robichaux. Uh, you ever read a Dave Robichaux book? Uh, you talked to me about him, and yeah. uh, I think I may have. John something, Burke? Uh, Burke, James Lee Burke. James, James Lee, Lee Burke. Burke. Yeah, and then I like Pat Conroy. Um, so th- those are guys, th- they're still not quite... Like Henry James, though you know Henry James, I guess well, I think you'd call I think, it literary fiction. Um, yeah, but there is a tradition of that going on right now still. But, there is. But in this story, which is the only Henry James I've ever read, so I know I'm judging quite a bit just on this novella. But it's very ambiguous. Definitely ambiguous. I okay. think that's the key word. Yeah. Okay. So he, it's um, deliberately ambiguous. Yeah. And why? Why the de- deliberate ambiguity? What um, is the ambiguity? It's over there in a box. <laughs> is that stuck in your head like it is mine? That's a money. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I I started off quite disliking it. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, in my listening, my reading, my different approaches to it, I found out that I'm actually liking it a lot more than I did. Good. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not because of what's in the book, I think. I think it's it's what's it is that ambiguity and it it, it feels very strange for me to say it, but I, I am a definitely a, a Wells guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I am seeing something in the turn of the screw that I do appreciate, 
and that it is there's something to this ambiguity. I mean, I think maybe we should outline the story. Okay. Um, and don't worry about uh, you know spoiling it for anybody. Okay. Um, I think we should just outline the, the basic plot of the story because really there are there's no way to ruin it for someone because it is so ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> there is no clear answer as to what's going on. There is only what happens. Okay. Uh, I think the ending is is fairly clear what's going on. Uh, well, in I, it, I didn't think happened, it was. I didn't think it was clear. But let, yeah, once we get through it, I'll explain. You know, what I think yeah. is what's clear. But okay. why it happens is not clear at all. All right. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, the, the story opens. Well, first it has a little framing thing at the beginning where this guy says, hey, I'm about to read you something. So, um, But that, that isn't uh, framed at the other end of it. Yeah, and that really pissed me off, actually. Yeah. That, that lack of framing at the end mm-hmm. is very annoying. Um, and uh, I think I was reading on the Wikipedia entry saying that this is very similar to a framing device used by Joseph Conrad in Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. But uh, I could be corrected, but um, I, I think Heart of Darkness is similar in that it offers a, a little bit of ambiguity, mm-hmm. uh, but I also think it's way superior. Um, yeah, although, I, I, as I say, I'm, I'm becoming more appreciative of story, uh-huh. uh, uh, The Turn of the Screw. I think it still Heart of Darkness is a far superior book. Although they're both novel novella length, which is similar, yeah, and yeah. Similar time period. It is a good length. You know, I like this. It's a very story. good length. Okay, so um, there's a, a governess who comes um, unnamed, I believe. Unnamed, yeah, I, I can't recall her name. If no, I just think she's not given a name. Okay, and um, she's shown. Uh, well, she's she has to take care of these kids, and the 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 little girl she meets first. Her name is Flora. And beautiful little girl. I mean, it's mentioned in there, the most beautiful girl she's ever seen. Mm-hmm. Right? That's but repeatedly she, mentioned, yes. Repeatedly mentioned. So then she's got a brother. Uh, Flora has a, an older brother who is off at school. Not much older. Not much older, right. And he ends up getting sent back. He's expelled, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they receive a letter saying he's expelled, and then he shows up very shortly afterward, and he's the best-looking boy she's ever seen. Yes. Um, but she reserves judgment. Um, she, she kind of convinces herself that, um, you know, she, she's worried about him because she's worried about what kind of person he's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, she's uh, very concerned about corruption, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, corrupting influences, and uh, sort of, uh, it's unclear if it's a moral lapse that she's worried about or ungodliness. Mm-hmm. Very unclear exactly what she's worried about, but she's definitely worried. Right, right. And concerned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but still, the moment that she sees the boy, she's just overtaken, you know, with his charisma and uh, doesn't, well, basically refuses to think ill of him at that point. Okay, then um, shortly after he arrives, um, she starts to see... Uh, another person in the house. He'll be looking through a window or something. And um, anyway, kind of in impossible positions. Um, yes. And, and looking or for no one, you know, No one else in the house sees. You know, she asks the other servants and 
Right. Uh, Mrs. Go- Gross, I think is how it's B- yeah. G-R-O-S-E. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard it pronounced uh, or Gross, mm-hmm. but um, she 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 plays an important role in the book as well. Right. Yeah, but none of the other servants see this apparition. Right. Right. Okay, but um, then um, she starts to see another one of a woman, right? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, we're for me it was pretty unclear for a long time whether the kids could see these two or not. Um, but the governess explains, isn't doesn't she explain to Mrs. Gross? Yes. Okay, who these, what she's seeing, and um, Mrs. Gross knows exactly who they are, who yes. she's explaining. Yep. Yes. Uh, he, he, uh, the man she sees um, has distinctive red hair and uh, red whiskers, I think, and he looks like uh, a showman, I guess, uh, and he's dressed in fine finery uh, above his station. He looks untrustworthy, sort of, but um, uh, Mrs. Gross is totally uh, able to find out who he is immediately just by the description mm-hmm. um and she says it is um a man named uh, uh i think the woman quint, was named yeah. jessel quint quint yeah quint is uh the deceased deceased uh manservant of the man who hired her um the uh uncle of these uh, little children mhm Right. You want me to take over the yeah. story from here? Yeah, go from okay. there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, she she's um, shocked to learn that uh, as as the story unfolds, we we learn more about how uh, the previous governess, who uh, is the apparition that she also sees out on the on the estate, and um, uh, she sees the uh, the apparition of the of the uh, man. Uh, outside the window or up on the roof, um, she sees him, and um, she thinks that there's some connection between the children and these apparitions, and that she comes to believe that the children are um, aware of the apparitions but unwilling to acknowledge them. Right. And mm-hmm. the um, the the case is, uh, what do we know for sure? She seems very convinced of many things, but she's also doubting, and Mrs. Gross is also doubting, uh, even though there is, seems, you know, she, she, the, the very fact that Gross knows who, who these people are by at least the description of the man, um, it, it, we just know that the woman is described as beautiful. I don't think we get a lot more details. Uh, she's dressed in black, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we find out um, that there, the... Uh, the two of them, Quint and Jessel, had a relationship of some kind, and that also they each had a relationship to the children. Uh, the the man with the the boy, um, what's the boy's name again? Oh, um, uh, it's very short. Uh, yeah. The girl's name Flora, and the boy's name's Miles. I Miles, think. that's it. Yep. Yeah, Miles. So mm-hmm. Quint and Miles had some sort of uh, relationship blow Quint around, and Quint was some sort of a corrupting influence. Um, and this ties in very well with what we know about um, uh, Miles. When we first meet him, he has been expelled from school, 
uh, for un unseemly behavior of some kind, unspecified mm-hmm. unseemly behavior. Um, and because of the unique situation, you didn't mention at the beginning, at the, at the very beginning of the story, everyone is sitting around a uh, dining table listening to ghost stories on, I think it's Christmas Eve or mm-hmm. at, at, at Christmas time anyways. And one person says, uh, you think that's a good ghost story? Well, let me uh, give you another one about a child seeing a ghost. In fact, oh, this yeah. is two children seeing a ghost, and that's where we get the title from. It's not super clear to me uh, that w- why that particular phraseology is used for the title, but mm-hmm. the turn of the screw is the idea is that a slight change in the story or a new twist, maybe, mm-hmm. on uh, an old story, which is a ghost story. And his... He, he purports to have some papers which tell this story firsthand uh, from the point of view of the governess, mm-hmm. who, as we say, is never named. But he says that this is, uh, was his sister's governess, I think. His sister's governess is, is what we're told. And I right. think that's actually quite significant um, because if you think about it, what happens at the end of the story? The boy dies, right? Right, right. Now... This, the girl does not die. Mm-hmm. If, if this is the sister's governess, right? Mm-hmm. His sister's governess. Who is the man who has these papers? It has to He's be the boy. Yeah. The boy. <laughs> right. And Miles. And yes. I think that's I it's starting. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that until you know I start thinking about the way the story is structured. I mean, it really doesn't make sense to have this framing story unless we're we're telling something rather strange. It, it's sort of set in the same place where uh, it is it is told as well, right? And it's set in a country estate, a uh, bunch of people sitting around, you know, isolated from their neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, talking about ghost stories, and it's about a ghost story, <laughs> um, yep, yep. and the man himself telling the story may be, in fact, a ghost. Uh, I think you could probably look too deeply into that, um, and perhaps that's what gives it some of that ambiguousness that makes it hard to pin down. But anyways, mm-hmm. that's part of this part of the scenario. Um, uh, so what 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 is it that you dislike so much about? Well, uh, there wasn't, you know, anything specifically that I disliked, more more of a thing of well, what's to like about it? Um, mm. you know, I, I really liked the language and everything, but I felt that it was slow. It's it is a bit slow. And um measured. Yeah, and at the end I guess it occurred to me that the governess could possibly have just been nuts. Yes, and definitely. If, and if and if that's so, then it, it it seemed to me like it was almost like you know that guy from Dallas waking up from a dream and forgetting the whole previous season. Yes. You you know what I mean? Completely pointless. Right. Completely pointless. Exactly. Yes, absolutely, and that is I think highly relevant to. Why it is? It feels so um, un un ungood. Yeah, <laughs> unsatisfactory. Uh, completely unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you if you ser- take seriously the idea that yes, she might be crazy. I mean, Mrs. Gorse. I think it's uh, from the different versions I've seen and uh, and listening to the different versions. I'm starting to think that Mrs. Gorse. Uh, is very concerned about her mental health. 
the mm-hmm. governess's mental mental health. She at the beginning of the story, I forgot to mention this. Okay, so at the beginning of the story, we've got this framing story, but after that, we're told that there's this uh, governess who comes to see a man in London. Uh, he has uh, uh, advertised for a governess, and uh, our unnamed governess shows up for this appointment. He right. has it, one major stipulation. It's important one, to note too that it, it's the governess that's writing the whole thing. It's supposed to be in her. Yes, hand, it's told right? from her. It is for first person. Okay, go ahead. Um, it's it's very important that he he has one giant stipulation. He has um, he has charge of his niece and nephew, the son of his brother and uh, his uh, uh, sister in law, who have both died. Uh, the the father, uh, the his his brother had died in India, and I think the mother from yellow fever, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and so he has charge of these children, but he has no interest in children, and in fact, he has no interest in being uh, involved in their lives. So the job of governess is actually more like the job of a mother, in the sense that she has to be making all the decisions for them. Um, he makes it inc- completely clear that her job is entirely dependent upon him not being involved at all. The lawyer is going to handle the finances. All he's doing is hiring her, and you know he'll never see her again. Is the idea mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, now that puts a, a certain pressure on on the governess to be entirely responsible. And I think you know you could you could look at all sorts of. Um, Arguments. I mean, especially in in that clip we heard uh, about you know the portrait of a lady. I think it, there's something we could argue about Henry James being you know somewhat of a sexist in the way he he thinks of women <laughs> being um, the he, women are the focus of his stories, but they're also unreliable in a certain way. Um, at least in the case of this governess being. Um, Highly intuitively emotional, but perhaps not in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when when the crisis the crises come upon her, you know, crises of decision, she is uh, in the counsel of this untutored woman, Mrs. Gross, and that's all. That's the her entire a body of um, conversation about the children and what to do about them. I think they go to church, but we never hear about, uh, you know, her uh, talking with other members of the community. She is entirely alone, and when she does make her decisions, you know, to not miles about his uh, expulsion from school, to um, not confront the children about what they're seeing or not seeing, those decisions come in a uh, in a. Uh, an unreflective manner. They only come in reflection to what Mrs. Gorse is saying, which is, you know, the children are good mm-hmm. and that any badness in the children are naughtinesses, not, not evils. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it occurs to me that we didn't mention how the boy died at the end. No, we didn't. And, uh, it's sort of unclear. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's important who was there. <laughs> who was there? Who was there? I mean, the, the governess was there. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he after Miles is there. Yeah, Miles Miles is there, obviously. But he he dies in her arms. He dies in her arms while 
um, the governess sees a vision of of uh, Quint, and right. she forces upon the boy, or at least she, you know, demands he acknowledge the existence of Quint. Mm-hmm. And I think the boy does acknowledge the existence of Quint. Mm-hmm. Uh, although he can't see him, he says, you know, I know you're there, Quint. Right? Right, right. Um, and then and, the boy just dies. And then the boy right. dies. Right. Uh, uh, in the different movie versions, they have different ways of how this happens. I've seen mm-hmm. one, he falls down. Um, in the book, I think he dies in her arms. Yeah, um, he, she's holding him, and then she notices that his heart isn't beating. Right. But, it, you know, what happened, you know, there's part of the ambiguity is a lot of things could have happened. You know, she could have killed him. I think I think that's clearly the one of the implications, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, or uh, or something else had happened. Like, uh, But they, they, she was always worried about, you know, Mrs. Gorse was especially worried about the confrontation between, you know, making the children acknowledging something that's not uh, something they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that went through my mind after seeing the uh, 1961 movie version, which is called The Innocence, a very good movie, um, very interesting adaptation, um, is that it might uh, there might have been um, you know this relationship between the two children and their their two respect respective um, uh, surrogate parents prior to the governess, the. Um, the Quint for the boy Miles and the um, Jessel for the girl Flora. Um, in the movie version, they make it make it uh, almost appear like there was some sort of sexual relationship between the boy and the governess. Hmm. Uh, and and I thought this is why I didn't see that in the book when I was reading the book. I didn't see that at all. Uh, but you know, he kisses her on the lips when they go to bed. But it's far too long a, a locking of lips, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, what the, what the hell does this mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, is that in the book? And I'm thinking about it, and I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure at all. But I, I do, when I start thinking about the corruption that Mrs. Gorse is talking, actually not so much Mrs. Gorse, but the governess talks about corruption. You know, uh, in the letter, she says... Uh, it, it says he's been expelled, but it's not explained why. And she's curious to ask the boy about why he was expelled. But seeing his nature, um, as he plays with his sister and you know does his schoolwork for her, she can't see anything evil in the boy. Nothing. He, he's not even bad. Hmm. Except yep. one time uh, he plays a trick on her. Uh, he goes outside and he stands outside, uh, having convinced Flora previously, he says, yeah, to yeah. go to the window to and out. open it yeah. and look outside mm-hmm. so that, uh, she, she confronts the boy and said, why are you outside? And he says, so that you would ask me that question and think that I'm bad. And that's a very interesting response. It uh, is. <laughs> but it's completely ambiguous as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm starting to see the problem here is is we're not on firm ground. This is very marshy territory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and the entire thing is is marshy, you know. Completely. And, um, but just sitting here talking about it with you, you know, I feel I'm more interested in it. Yeah, I, it's I, like I, it, maybe it's just not meant to be taken in isolation. <laughs> you know, once you start think, talking about it, 
there are a lot of possibilities, and the possibilities are all interesting. They are. They are. Mm-hmm. But by by its very ambiguity, I think that therein lies the 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 problem with it feeling um, insubstantial in a way, um, and and to be taken less than uh, you know the war the worlds or something far more concrete. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, War of the Worlds works as a sim- symbolic story, right? It's about colonialism. Yes. Uh, it's about science. Right, it's right. about um, how the world works. Mm-hmm. This is possibly about how the world works, and it's possibly about how women are, and mm-hmm. it's possibly about children and their relationship with adults, and it's possi- but everything's a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that marshiness uh, does not work in favor of a of a... Uh, unsophisticated reading, I guess. Yeah. Um, there's a quote I found, um, if I can find it here, uh, about what Wells said, or what um, he said, um, sorry, what James said about Wells, mm-hmm. uh, to Wells about this story. Uh, so it says here... James, um, James said... Something to Wells yeah. about this particular story. I'll read, I'll read what it says here. Okay. It says, James was strangely dismissive of the tale, that is, the turn of the screw, and described it whimsically in a letter to H.G. Wells as, quote, a shameless pop, pot boiler. Uh, perhaps James, he James, wished, hold on. Does it, James is saying this about his own story? Yes, and he's describing it to Wells as... He's explaining, quote, he says his own story is a pot boiler? Yes, a okay. shameless pot boiler. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Um, and he says... <laughs> Perhaps he wished to guard his, uh, the uh, article here says, perhaps he wished to guard his reputation as an observer of realism and decided to play down his departure into the supernatural. The description of Bly, that is the place where uh, this is set in England, um, B-L-Y, and its surroundings, the mounting tension as Miles seems to slip into evil, and the account of fear that James's narrator provides creates justifiable skepticism about his, his evaluation. Whatever the truth, uh, whatever the reason for his comment, it cannot be denied that, quote, the turn of the screw remains one of the finest examples of the ghost story in the 19th century literature. And I think that that's very clear that uh, it is a famous um, and highly regarded ghost story. Mm-hmm. But never in the entire text of the story do I think there is ever a mention of a ghost, right? I don't mm-hmm. remember hearing that word. No, I don't think they ever said the word, but she is looking at a dece- deceased person. So she was looking. It was, at it was clear. Yeah. It's it, it's an implication, right? But I think it's interesting that it was not there. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the ideas that had you know why is it not in there? Uh, well, to say it makes it more real, perhaps. Um, she's telling her own story, and because she's telling her own story, um, and the fact that we know. I mean, if this story was being told to us by that woman sitting over on the couch there, uh, you would not say, wow, that's a great ghost story. You would say, um, have you been taking your medication? Mm-hmm. You've, you've just killed a boy, right? Yep. Because of delusions. That's what we would say. But because it's fiction, we don't have that option. Mm-hmm. We have that option, but if we use it, it completely negates the meaning of the story. Whereas if we keep it as a possibility... And we take also the possibility that everything she sees is true, or at least um, uh, related to reality. Then we have this f- feeling of 
insubstantialness that makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually the interesting part is that um, if you say it was this, then it's no good. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the movie versions I saw um, moves the story up to 1921 after World War I, which... Mm -hmm. Uh, doesn't seem to be a reason for it, I guess. Um, but it has a framing story as well. It, it makes up its own framing story, and it puts uh, the governess in a mental hospital at the beginning of the story, right? Uh-huh. Um, and then she tells her story to the psychiatrist, I guess it is, um, you know, explaining what's happened. Um, and it's up, I guess it's up to us to determine whether she's crazy or not. Um, I think by putting it in those terms, you've actually changed, you've done an interpretation. And if you look at the list of of um, different adaptations, there's been about 20 different mm-hmm. movie versions of this story. Yeah. And it is completely open to interpretation, right? Yeah. You can do yeah. it any way you want. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the most interesting adaptations that I found, I haven't seen it. In fact, I, I haven't seen The Innocents either, and I haven't seen The Others. Um, but there was one that had Marlon Brando as Quint, and mm-hmm. it was a prequel to Turn of the Screw. Well, what was that called? Um, I don't recall. Okay. That's not the name of it. I just really don't recall. <laughs> well, we can, no. I, I, I'm just joking. I but, think we um, can look it up on Wikipedia. But yeah, look it up, because um, that kind of struck me. Oh, Marlon Brando in a in a prequel to Turn of the Screw. Now, at the beginning, when we played that Eric Rabkin um, mm-hmm. quote, um, it seems to me that, okay, just to recap, you know, uh, Henry James was into realism of response, Mm-hmm. And the psychology of the individual, and he says yes. that's that's what novels are for. Yes. But then H.G. Wells, and you can see that in his work, obviously, yeah, in this for sure. Yeah, and then um, H.G. Wells says, "Well, the novel needs to explore the great social forces that shape all of us." Okay, but I don't I don't see that as an argument. Um, well, why can't it be both? Um, uh, not both in every novel, but. But novels do both of those clearly um, right now. Well, uh, if you were um, Thomas Kuhn, you would say uh, they're working in different paradigms, right? They're mm-hmm. they're working in completely incommensurable sciences. Um, Wells is saying this is what novels are, and many people who uh, write science fiction, I think, are not all everyone who writes science fiction, or at least says they write science fiction, um, does that. I think. You know that Margaret Atwood is certainly working more in the tradition of um, Henry James than she is in in um, yeah. the tradition a, of Wells. That's an excellent point. You know, we have this literary, you know, quote literary science fiction. You know, that is really kind of mainstream writers that are writing with science fiction ideas nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, like The Road by Cormac McCarthy and um, you know everything Margaret Atwood writes. Right. But that's all science fiction, but told in the Jamesian way. Yes. Um, it, and and I think that's where some of the dissatisfaction comes. Uh, you know, if you're approaching it from a Wellsian perspective, uh, you're not going to come away with a with a uh, satisfaction that you you will uh, approaching it with a Jamesian perspective. 
Um, and so I, I have this disconnect in my mind about, you know, Margaret Atwood, she wrote a great novel called um, The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is a great novel, but I also don't think it's a great science fiction novel in the same way that I think um, Brave New World is or 1984, even though it's in the very same tradition. Um, it's more of a literata- literary novel about people set in, uh, you know, it's not about the great social forces. It's about people's reaction to uh, what it would be like to live in those great social forces. And it doesn't make me think, you know, how would I react in that situation? It's it's like, wow, this woman's really feeling something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, that, it, it is interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about uh, mainstream and mysteries. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a story I wanted to mention. Um, there's actually, I looked it up, and there are a number of governess stories um stories about governesses Mm -hmm. uh and if you think about what governess means it just means you know woman who governs right right Uh, but what it really is is um is uh is a teacher of children uh usually for the rich uh in the countryside presumably the schools are not available and they especially tend to teach children who are quite young before they've gone to uh you know off to residential school of some kind um and in fiction uh it, it, there's a listing here and it says um william makepeace thackeray's novel vanity fair uh the main character is employed as a governess henry james is uh says the most famous governess is the oversensitive slightly whorish and perhaps hysterical one in the turn of the screw and i, th- hmm. I was thinking slightly whorish that's yeah. interesting that is interesting. Isn't that? yeah because i i didn't see that when i read it the first time but I saw a different movie version um, uh, with Jodie May, um, British actress, I think. And she, uh, she comes across as very attracted to the uncle at the beginning of the story. And almost as if she, the, the, the way they played it, they don't actually change the dialogue that much. But they played it much more towards her being, trying to, she was seduced by this man into taking the job. And seduced by the idea of the man, and I noticed later uh, in the later reading of the book that actually that there are lines of dialogue that you know between Gross and um, and uh, the governess about explaining you know you know he does have this influence on women right mm-hmm. he is very um, uh, attractive to women and it's probably not just to do with how much money he has you know being a wealthy man. But also, he is um, kind of a strange man in that he has no interest in children. He has um, uh, an interest in playing the field, and he thinks about getting married, but only one day. You know, it's an abstract sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that line, just uh, hysterical, I can see that. I can see that. She doesn't act hysterically in the book, but... If you think about it, her actions are hysterical. Yeah, and she's she's, she's writing this down herself, so she's yes. not going to say, I was hysterical. No, she wouldn't say, I'm completely hysterical. Mm-hmm. Is she an unreliable narrator? I think... It's a big question, it's Mark. A, it's a huge question, especially at the end. Um, if she was an unreliable narrator, it would explain why the exact cause of death wasn't explicitly said. Right. She says, I'm sitting there, and then he's dead. You know? 
It's uh, like, I was thinking, you know, uh, shaken baby syndrome. You know, you, you're, mm. you're trying to calm a baby down when you're actually not calm yourself. Uh, people end up do, people do kill their children. Mm-hmm. You know, this happens. And she does take on a very strange relationship that is it's almost more intense than any mother I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the children as their protector, as their teacher. She is, in fact, you know, the head of the household there. She's in charge of all the servants. Um, she is entirely charged with the care and uh, protection of the children. And she takes it to heart. Anyways, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked. One of, the, one of the governesses not listed in the Wikipedia entry for uh, governesses in fiction uh, is uh, the governess in the Copper Beaches, which is a Sherlock Holmes story, and you may not recall the name uh, of that that story. It's not like the Red Headed League mm-hmm. or a Scandal in Bohemia that really brings to to mind the story. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think the story is very interesting, um, and it is very similar in a way. Um, but unlike um, unlike the case of uh, uh, the turn of the screw, where you have a governess who is uh, telling her own story, and we end up with a very ambiguous, almost ghost story. Um, this is a, a story very much in the tradition of Sherlock Holmes. Um, things are mysterious, but we end up knowing, like Wells does, you know, and we end up knowing the facts, and we find out why people are acting so strangely. So in the Copper Beaches, the way the way the story starts, a woman comes to see Sherlock Holmes, um, telling her, telling him about this strange offer she's had for work. She's a governess, and she has been um, uh, out of work for some time. And one day she went uh, to her employment agency and was uh, there met by a man who wanted to employ a governess. Um, as soon as she stepped into the room. He seemed very taken by her, uh, the the man did, and he wanted to hire her, but he had some very strange requirements. She she was uh, requested to do something strange, just like in The Turn of the Screw. She's requested never to contact the uncle. In in this case, um, the woman in the Copper Beaches, the governess, is required to, uh, if she's going to take the job, she will be paid a handsome sum, much more than double uh, what she normally would get paid, but she has to do some very strange things, like have her hair cut very short and to uh, wear a certain piece of clothing uh, that they might provide for her and that she might be asked by his wife, uh, the husband, uh, the husband is the one doing the interview, the wife who is back on the estate, uh, she might be asked to sit by, you know, the... Uh, window or sit by the um, piano um, and that if, if she is willing to these these requests, these strange requests that he makes then um, the job is hers and, and mm-hmm. the accompanying salary so it's, it's a very similar setup right, right except the right. parents are not dead um, and uh, then the story plays out quite differently but mm-hmm. she does have this sort of you know she there, there are some similar similarities um, along the way. So, for example, when she goes, she, her Sherlock Holmes says, that's very interesting. Uh, please let me know how it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> so she runs off to take the job because it's such a high 
uh, figure of uh, for the work. And, uh, you know, cutting her hair is a uh, loss, but it will grow back, right? Right. Um, so she goes and she takes the job, and then she writes to Sherlock Holmes saying, it's very strange. They, they've had me sit by the window um, and sit here or there as they've requested, and they've given me a special, especially bright blue dress to wear. Um, but other than that, the, you know, the child is, is perfectly normal, and the family is, you know, perfectly normal. Uh, but then um, one time uh, what they would do is, is the, man, the, uh, the man who employs her would tell her funny stories in the afternoon. He would have her sit, sit uh, in the afternoon sunlight uh, by the window, and he would uh, regale her with a series of very funny stories. Um, and she started to get this feeling that there was someone behind her outside the window. And so one day she secured a uh, little mirror and held it in front of her eyes as if she was uh, wiping her forehead to see out over her shoulder out the window. And she caught a glimpse of a man outside the window, right? Mm -hmm. It's very similar in the, in the sense, you know, she's yeah, seeing an apparition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, then Sherlock Holmes comes in and investigates and, and clears up the matter. Mm -hmm. And I, I won't be spoiling anything for anyone who's read the story, but uh, it turns out that um, uh, upstairs, locked away in the attic, is is a, a woman who looks very much like the governess, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, who is their daughter, and who has um, uh, been locked away because, first of all, she was ill, and second of all, because she uh, stands to inherit a large fortune, which the father does not want to give up. He's the step his stepfather, I guess. Um, he doesn't want to give up the the large fortune, and that man is her suitor. Hmm. So uh, the idea is she's she's playing a role of spurning the man she's not interested in marrying, right? right. So it all comes out very clear mm -hmm. in the end, and I think this is a great story. Yeah, yeah. But when I compare it to The Turn of the Screw, I say, you know, they're completely not the same kind of story. Mm -hmm. And in that way, mystery, I mean, a a Asimov is the perfect example mystery and science fiction are very closely aligned yeah uh even even uh, the man who wrote all those sherlock holmes story arthur conan doyle he wrote science fiction and he wrote mystery and they aren't that dissimilar they're very similar in structure they're about tales of ratiocination as as edgar Allan poe would call them right mm -hmm. right tales of you know your uh, your mind and the universe and how they interact um Whereas the story of uh, The Turn of the Screw, not so much. It's more of uh, uh, the text and your interpretation. And I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Now, um, you said that there was a comic version you looked at as well. How did it yeah. go on that? Uh, I'm going to, I'll provide a scan for it. I, I don't have it. Uh, in hand, but mm -hmm. it's uh, from my collection I, I've had since I was a kid. I just recently re rediscovered uh, Pocket Classics, which are um, a series of about 70 um, very slim volumes. Um, I, I think I linked to pictures, perhaps not, of um, the uh, Invisible Man mm -hmm. version uh, when we did a podcast about that previously. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they're very slim volume, un, unattributed uh, 
in any way other than uh, you know the copyright and the who published it. But we don't know who the artist is, and we don't know who who did the adaptation. Um, but they're very very quick summary sort of uh, classic comics versions of classic stories in black and white and very very fun. I like the idea of these books, and I'd like to do more shows just based on on these tiny little comic books that I've got. That's cool. So yeah, that's that's a, a definitely a cool one, and um, uh, I, I don't know if you've got anything more to say. I do have one more thing I wanted to. Okay. Yeah, please uh, do. Uh, do you know you know um, uh, Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there's a, a line in Oscar Wilde uh, uh, his play, um, "The Importance of Being Earnest," and it came to mind. When I was thinking of the scenario that Miles and Flora are in, um, uh, Lady Bracknell, um, in The Importance of Being Earnest, says, to, loo- to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. <laughs> if you think about the story, right? Uh-huh. Um, in this case, for the children of uh, The Turn of the Screw, it was very careless of them to let their parent die oh, because man. it costs them both quite a lot <laughs> alright yep. alright well do you have a pick of the week uh sure I'll, I'll pick I'll pick the um the movie The Innocence 1961 oh, okay I found it I found it a very interesting adaptation it's got a a lot of acting act actors in hoop skirts and um I think one of the ladies from uh from Black Adder uh, the woman who plays Nursey to uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth in it must be Blackheader the Second. She she plays the governess, Mrs. Mrs. Gorse. I'm pretty sure that's her. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, it's funny to see her in a dramatic role uh, because it it's a very similar kind of character, you know, sort of uh, a poorly educated, um, uh, frumpy woman, but. Uh, uh, with a bit of comic spirit in in Black Adder, uh, in this she's she's more honest and straightforward, but um, just as you know, poorly educated and uh, and yet a very important character in the story. I think. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting adaptation because they it's in black and white from 1961. It's in black and white, but it's mm-hmm. it's very striking um, and it uses sound incredibly well. I think when you talk about delusions, you know, and illusion, you know, seeing things that aren't there, um, sounds are much more ambiguous than our visuals, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other versions I've seen of this movie have uh, the man in plain sight. You know, you can just see the man standing there just yeah. as well as she could, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, in this one, uh, he's more behind glass and he appears out of the darkness, right? Uh-huh. And it's it's a lot less clear uh, what's going on, and I think it sticks very closely in that spirit to the book, rather than taking you know the much more um, hands-on my interpretation of what what the story is that a lot of the other adaptations of uh, the Turn of the Screw do. All right. How about for you? Hmm. Well, for me, um, you know, I don't have a Turn of the Screw adaptation other than the we already mentioned the audiobook I listened to. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just going to pick another classic horror story, okay. uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. 
Wow. Uh, that, the, the version that uh, I really like, or a version that I listened to that I really liked, I don't think I ever reviewed it, though. I got it from radioarchive.cc, mm-hmm. and um, it's read by Martin Jarvis. Um, th- excellent. Very well done. Uh, three, let's see, three episodes of 30 minutes each. Um, but anyway, it, it was published around 1820, and the turn of the screw was right near the turn of the century, so uh, 1898 or so, I think. Yeah, they're all sort of in that period, aren't they? Yeah, but yeah, 1820 is a good deal before that, but it's, yeah, uh, um, yeah this is definitely an American story. The oh, definitely. Sleep in Hollow, so. It's quite different. Yeah. It's quite different, um, but... Uh, I, I like. I am not a big fan of Washington Irving, but mm-hmm. I do like that story. I, I think Washington Irving is far too, uh, far too respected. <laughs> but um, I think I, that, I can't that, even that, think of what what he's got out there besides Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. Um, is there anything else? There are there are some other things. That, uh, yeah. uh, let's see. Yeah, and it, it's um, interesting to think about who's contemporary with all this stuff too, because you got Wells. And uh, Henry James, their contemporary, right at the turn of the century. And then uh, Lovecraft didn't come in until, like, 1910 Early 20s, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, but he would have been contemporary to those guys. Would he not have? Um, he would have been contemporary, but also he, he, he's a strange bird because uh-huh. um, he didn't write for money, basically. Uh-huh. Um, what I've been reading about Lovecraft basically says that he earned his living by rewriting other people's books. Hmm. Um, uh, basically, he was a gun for hire. You would, if you wanted to be a writer, you would write to him and say, "Here's my story. I don't know what to do with it," and he would rewrite it for you, and then you would sell it together, right. and he would make money that way. Um, there's a whole book I've got from the library right now uh, that's uh, a call, it's it's called the Black Museum. Uh, that is stories rewritten of craft, um, hmm. often using very little of the original material. Um, but which are not generally credited to Lovecraft, right. um, and he 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 didn't care so much about getting paid for his work uh, in writing. He was very into amateur publications, mm-hmm. so he would write a story, and if it was rejected, he to you know put it in a drawer, or he would he would not want. He hated rejection, and he hated the process of you know trying to submit stories and have them conform to whatever the editors wanted. He, he knew exactly what he wanted to write, and that's generally what he wrote. Mm-hmm. So um, he, doesn't, he doesn't fit into the, uh, the Wells um, period in the same way that um, Wells does, because Wells was extremely popular, and Lovecraft was not. He was not popular, except in a very few, with a very few people mm-hmm. uh, during his... Uh, his lifetime. Now, of course, he is incredibly popular, perhaps more popular than Wells, which is uh, this is quite surprising, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I just looked up Edgar Allan Poe, and he died. He's more of a contemporary with Irving, I would yeah, say. Yeah, he's a contemporary with Irving. Uh, he died at, in 1849. So, um, yeah. yeah, if The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was published in 1820, then Poe was likely to have read it as a youngster or something. I, I should also point out that since you mentioned uh, Radio Archive, there is a audio drama adaptation of uh, The Turn of the Screw, and I, I started listening to it last night, and I'm quite enjoying it. It's very close. Oh. Close. It's uh, 90 minutes, I would say. I, I would guess it's from the it's from 93, so I, I think it's from the uh, Saturday Night Theater. Okay. 90-minute uh, uh, 
adaptation with good length um, for an adaptation of this story and um, very well produced. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.